0: Hi! Welcome to Criminal Broads, a new true crime and history podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law. My name is Tori Telfer. I'm the author of a book about female serial killers called Lady Killers, and because I wrote this book, I have sort of accidentally become the person that all my friends text if a woman does something bad. So, to give you an example, um, here's a text sent to me by my childhood best friend, who is now a mother of two. She said, Browsing the news this morning, there's a lady killer on the loose in Florida. Killed her husband and a lookalike to take her identity. Now, just to give you a little more context, my friend sent me this text literally seconds after sending me a photo of her newborn son uh, announcing that she had had the birth successfully. And you know what? I love it. I'm honored. I'm truly honored to be that person. So anyway, I'm here to tell you the stories of some of these women. The first three episodes are a bit serial killer heavy, which I don't think, uh, if you're a true crime fan, is a problem, but I would like to assure you that I will also be covering bandits and cult leaders, fraudsters, pickpockets, anyone with an interesting story and, of course, a penchant for misbehaving. Without further ado, let's time travel to Charleston, South Carolina, in the early 1800s, where A place called the Old City Jail was packed full of dreadful criminals and one criminal was more notable and more infamous than all the rest for the simple reason that she was a woman. The people of Charleston, South Carolina love Lavinia Fisher. If you grew up in Charleston, you definitely heard her story whispered around a campfire at some point. And Charleston's tourists are obsessed with Lavinia, too. If you're visiting the city, it's hard to avoid taking a ghost tour, they're everywhere in Charleston, and Lavinia is the most popular ghost around. I spoke to a couple of tour guides and they all agree. Randy Johnson, from Bulldog Tours, takes people all up and down the creepy old city jail to tell them about the notorious Lavinia, and people are spellbound. You can tell by their body language, he says. Why do they care so much? Because Lavinia was America's first female serial killer. At least that's how the legend goes. That's what pops up when you Google her. And Lavinia has a bone to pick with society, the legend says. That's why she's still around. So here's the story. In 1819, Lavinia was 27 and married to a cowardly guy named John Fisher. The two of them ran an inn on the outskirts of Charleston called the Six Mile House. There was also the Five Mile House and the Four Mile House, and so on. These names were designed to let hungry travelers know just how far they were from the city. The inn may have looked like a charming little b and Lavinia, and Lavinia, said to be very beautiful, seemed like a lovely little hostess, but it was all a facade. When a wealthy guest arrived at the Six Mile House, Lavinia would charm them and eventually hand them a beautiful, fragrant cup of tea—oleander tea. Oleander tea made from the leaves of the deadly oleander plant. Once the victim grew sleepy, Lavinia and John would lead the man to bed. As the weary traveler fell into an unusually deep sleep, the couple would watch and wait. Then, once they were convinced that the victim wouldn't be getting up, they'd pull a lever and a trapdoor beneath the bed would gape open, the bed would drop through the floor, and the traveler would fall into the cellar which was full of spikes. Usually that killed the victim immediately. If not, John would run down there and finish him off with an axe. Then they'd strip him of all his valuables and leave the body in the cellar to rot. This went on for years. Bodies piled up in the cellar, and the fishers grew rich from stolen gold. However, their life of crime came to a screeching halt when one traveler, a man named John Peoples, grew suspicious. He hated tea, and so when Lavinia gave him a cup, he secretly dumped it into a nearby plant. When the fishers showed him his room, he felt just a little bit strange about the whole vibe and so he decided to sleep in a chair by the door just to stay vigilant. Imagine his horror when the bed suddenly dropped through the floor. Realizing that he was staying in a murder hotel, John Peoples leaped out the window and rode straight to the police. This led to the Fishers' capture and the discovery of over 30 bodies decomposing in their cellar. The Fishers were thrown into the Old City Jail, tried, and condemned to execution by hanging. Cowardly John Fisher tried to pin all the crimes onto his wife, but Lavinia had an indomitable spirit and was convinced that she would go free. She was accustomed to getting her way. Her beauty was her weapon, and it rarely failed her. And she was also positive that the governor would not allow a woman to hang. It just wasn't done. But the execution date crept closer and closer, and no pardon came. Growing desperate, Lavinia requested to be hanged in her wedding dress. If it was unthinkable to see a woman hang, then it would be doubly unthinkable to hang a young woman in her wedding dress, right? Creepier versions of the legend say that Lavinia donned the pale dress because she planned to be married to the devil. By the day of the execution, Lavinia was frothing at the mouth. A minister tried to convince her to repent, but she refused to listen to him. If she wasn't going to get pardon from humans, she sure as hell didn't want pardon from the divine. Even as she climbed the gallows in her wedding dress— Even as the noose was placed around her neck, she was still expecting that pardon. Onlookers could see it in her eyes. In fact, it wasn't until seconds before her death that she realized no pardon would ever come. Did she cry then? Or beg for forgiveness? Or profess her innocence? Or commit her soul to God? No. Instead, as the minister tried one last time to get her to repent, Lavinia uttered the lines that would make her immortal. Cease. Cease. I will have none of it. Save your words for others that want them. But if you have a message you want to send to hell, give it to me. I'll carry it. And with that, Lavinia leaped off the platform into her death so that no man could claim that he'd executed her. But that was Lavinia's mistake. Since she refused divine pardon and didn't get human pardon, her spirit was trapped between the earth and the afterlife. To this day, her ghost roams around Charleston, waiting for pardon and angry at those who never granted it to her. That's why, if you find yourself walking the streets of the city after midnight, watch out for a woman in a long, white dress. A woman with beautiful, murderous eyes. It's a good story, right? Easy to see why people pay money to go on ghost tours to hear the tale of America's first female serial killer. The problem is that a lot of it isn't true. In fact, the supposed portrait of Lavinia Fisher that runs alongside her Wikipedia article is actually a painting of Kitty Fisher, a famous British courtesan. But don't be disappointed, because the real Lavinia is possibly even more interesting than the legend. Here's what really happened back in 1819 at the Six Mile House. We don't know much about where Lavinia came from. We don't know where she was born who her parents were we don't even know if she was legally married to john because there's no marriage license to be found but we know that she lived and we know that she did not die quietly in the early 1800s when john and lavinia ran the six mile house highway robbery was pretty common a newspaper article from lavinia's day says that a gang of desperados have for some time past, occupied certain houses and infested the road leading to the city practicing every deception upon the unwary, and frequently committing robberies upon defenseless travelers. So many robberies happened, in fact, that some of Charleston's citizens began worrying that it was hurting the wagon trade, which was a booming industry in Charleston at the time. If wagon traders were too scared to travel past these desperados, the citizens of Charleston would lose serious money. So on February 16th, 1819, a vigilante mob decided to do something. This mob burned Five Mile House to the ground and then rode over to Six Mile House, where they found a whole gang of criminals headed by the Fishers. They drove the gang off of the premises and set one of their own men to guard over the house, a man named David Ross. Then the mob rode off, presumably intending to come back and burn down the Six Mile House later. But they didn't count on the rage of Lavinia Fisher at being driven off her own property. So she and some of her men came back to the Six Mile House and attacked David Ross viciously. Later, when David Ross was giving a statement to police, he remembered Lavinia as being one of the most aggressive. The statement says, Lavinia Fisher laid violent hands upon him, choked, and boxed his head through a pane of window glass. Still, David Ross managed to run away. A few hours later, an unsuspecting man named John Peoples stopped by Six Mile House to water his horses. This is the man from the legend who poured out the poisonous tea. John Peoples was shocked when the gang jumped him and started beating him and grabbed all the money he had on him, so he ran to the sheriff, who was now faced with two victims claiming that the Fisher gang had attacked them in the span of a couple hours. The sheriff gathered his men, a couple of muskets, and a keg of powder, and arrested the entire gang pretty easily. Some sources say that John Fisher purposely didn't put up a fight because he didn't want to risk Lavinia's life. This is the first proof we have that John Fisher was actually a really nice guy and that he and Lavinia actually had a really lovely relationship but there's more proof to come. The gang was dragged off to the Old City Jail. Now, as far as Six Mile House goes, was it carefully investigated or swept for evidence? No, it was burned to the ground. You'd think that a cellar full of 30-something rotting corpses would have attracted some attention during the raid or after the house was burned. But there are no contemporary accounts of a cellar full of corpses, nothing about a trapdoor beneath a bed, or a cellar full of spikes, or oleander tea. In fact, only two corpses were ever found on the property. One was the body of a white man with long hair who'd been shot recently and who may have been a fellow gang member. The other was the skeleton of a young black woman whose identity was never determined. They were in the same grave. The story of the cellar full of corpses doesn't come along until a decade later by a Scottish tourist who claimed to have been in Charleston during the Fisher's arrest. He wrote, On digging around this den of iniquity. A great number of skeletons were found. No doubt the remains of unfortunate travelers. Now, I think we can all relate to the tendency to exaggerate and to say you were there when you maybe weren't. Bruce Orr, a retired criminal investigator whose book Six Miles to Charleston was hugely helpful while researching this episode, theorizes that this Scottish man may have been writing a penny dreadful, a type of cheap horror story popular in the UK in the 1800s. And so he exaggerated the story to make some extra money. Again, relatable, but distracting. The Fisher's time in jail was horrific. The Old City Jail was just about the creepiest place on earth, what with the many rodents and the decaying corpses and the fact that it was built over a cemetery. Interesting fact. Today, you can rent out the Old City Jail for your wedding. A total of 12 gang members were eventually brought into the jail, but soon enough the charges were dropped against everyone but John, Lavinia, and two others. The Fishers were indicted for their crimes against David Ross, the man whose head Lavinia smashed through a window. They were soon found guilty of assault with intent to murder and sent back to jail to await sentencing. By the night of September 13th, the Fishers and one of the other gang members had come up with a plan to escape by rappelling out of an upper floor of the jail using a rope made of blankets. John and the other man made their way to the ground in the dark, quiet night. But as John let himself down, the makeshift rope broke, and Lavinia was left 20 feet above them, stranded. There was no way for her to get down, and nothing the men could do without alerting the guards, and so the two men ran off into the darkness. History has not been kind to John Fisher. He's remembered as a coward who tried to throw all the blame onto his wife. But John could have hopped on a ship to Cuba that night. He could have saved himself. Instead, he and the other man stuck close to the jail, trying to raise enough money to spring Lavinia by bribing a guard. Three days later, they were discovered hiding under an overturned boat with a couple of gold pieces and some watches in their possession. Now things get a bit weird. And by the way, this is research uncovered by Bruce Orr, who wrote the Six Miles to Charleston book, so kudos to him. The Fishers had done some bad stuff, the assaults and now the escape attempt, which probably embarrassed the authorities. But they hadn't done anything truly heinous. But when their sentencing day rolled around a few months later, Suddenly, the charges against them shifted from assault to highway robbery. From the assault on David Ross to highway robbery against John Peoples. This means that they were sentenced for a crime they hadn't been formally accused of, or tried for, or convicted of. And they were sentenced to death. It was going to be a double-hanging, husband and wife, same day, same gallows, same trapdoor that would drop away beneath their feet. The next part of the story is pretty consistent with the legend. Lavinia absolutely believed that she would not die. She was convinced that she'd be pardoned, and she put up a raving, screaming fight against anyone who implied otherwise. The minister who attended them was Reverend Richard Furman, Furman University is named after him, and he took a special interest in the couple. But whenever he tried to pray for them, Lavinia would be distracted, waiting impatiently for the pardon. She'd jump at the slightest noise, convinced it was someone bringing the papers that would save her life, and then she'd explode in anger and curses when she realized that no one was there. By now, all of Charleston was interested in the Fisher's fate. They made good copy, the handsome young robber couple, the dramatic escape and recapture, the fact that a woman was involved, and the wealthy women of Charleston had an additional reason to be invested. They didn't want to see a white woman executed. Quick aside, This happens again and again in criminal history. People are often very concerned with who can get executed and how. In 18th century Russia, Moscow nobles didn't want to see a murderous noblewoman executed or tortured, not because they cared about her, but because they didn't want to set a precedent that nobles could be executed or tortured. Anyway, the governor grew more and more annoyed at all the furor around the Fisher case, especially when these wealthy women started petitioning him to leave Lavinia alone, And he ended up leaving the city temporarily to avoid his angry constituents now this anger wasn't totally misplaced there was a sense in charleston that something was fishy in their legal system what with the weird sentencing twist and the fact that most of the other gang members had gone free and even the fact that the crimes of the fishers were sort of exacerbated by the vigilante mob raid which obviously wasn't entirely legal but the pardon still didn't come Two coffins were picked out for the unhappy couple. The executioner, a pale, emaciated alcoholic with a cruel streak, was summoned to the jail. Charleston authorities would keep this executioner locked in the jail for a few days before a hanging so that he wouldn't drink, and then afterwards he'd go on a huge bender. Finally, the day the execution arrived, February 18th, 1820. One eyewitness, an attorney named John Blake White, Later wrote down everything he saw in a piece called Essays on Capital Punishment. Both John and Lavinia were clothed in white. This is how the wedding dress rumor got started, but these were not wedding garments. They were burial shrouds. The Reverend had helped them procure these loose white robes to hide their filthy clothes in an attempt to grant them a little bit of dignity. There was a big crowd there to see the fishers swing from the gallows. Seeing a woman hang was a huge deal, of course. John and Lavinia got into a coach with the reverend and the eerie-looking hangman. When Lavinia spotted the hangman, her cry chilled every heart with horror, the eyewitness said. And when they actually arrived at the gallows, it was John's turn to shudder in terror. The witness says that he turned white, shook, and pulled Lavinia toward him before collecting himself. Then the hangman tied up the couple without a shred of sympathy in his eyes. John mounted the gallows, but Lavinia refused to. She had to be dragged up onto the platform where she reached out trembling arms to the crowd, begging them to save her. And then she got angry. One historian wrote, She stamped in rage and swore with all the vehemence of her amazing vocabulary, calling down damnation on a governor who would let a woman swing. The crowd stood shocked into silence while she cut short one oath with another and ended with a volley of shrieks. Who knows what the silent crowd was thinking? One thing's for sure, it must have been incredibly hard to watch a condemned woman have to so publicly come to terms with the fact that she was about to die. The most heartbreaking detail is that, at one point, the sheriff unfolded a piece of paper and glanced at it. Lavinia looked at him with such hope in her eyes that the sheriff realized she thought the piece of paper was the pardon. He had to explain, excruciatingly, that it was just a bit of unrelated business. From the gallows john made a speech accusing the authorities of planting their names in john people's mind enabling john peoples to identify assailants which he very well might not have been able to identify on his own and then lavinia said her famous last words if you have a message you want to send to hell give it to me i'll carry it the couple embraced each other for the last time the hangman placed caps over their heads they stood there for a minute terrified and then the ground dropped from beneath their feet. Lavinia died quickly, without a struggle. John took a few minutes to die. He was 29 and Lavinia was only 28. So what can we make of all of this? How did a humble robber wife become known as America's first female serial killer? Well, first of all, I would bet that without her last words, Lavinia might have faded into obscurity long ago. I spoke to Lee Michu, a guide with Sandlapper Water Tours in Charleston, who said that when she quotes Lavinia's last words to tourists, she likes to say, this, ladies and gentlemen, is when it went from the story of Lavinia Fisher to the legend of Lavinia Fisher. Randy, the other tour guide I spoke to, has an amazing theory about why those last words have been so particularly chilling and have lasted for quite so long. He says, it occurred to me a while back that in a sense, she's putting herself out there as the dark Mary. That is Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary is the one who intercedes on behalf of the dying. We ask her, pray for me now and at the hour of my death. Lavinia is doing the same thing, but it's, I'll take your message to the devil. Neither Lee nor Randy thinks Lavinia was totally innocent. She was clearly mixed up in a troublesome gang, and a woman willing to slam someone's head through a pane of glass is probably not, say, a pacifist. But neither of them think she's a serial killer, though Randy does appreciate the power of the oral tradition that has made her one. People were being robbed on the highways all the time, he says. What would invoke the wrath of a community to do something back then that was almost unprecedented? The hanging of a white woman. It's an expression of anger. When I see them hanging a poor woman who had sympathy from the local female community, I'm thinking it was an act of revenge. Various researchers have their theories about why the Fishers were seemingly targeted, or at least not given a fair trial. The most compelling argument is that the government wanted their land. Lee tells me that the Fishers had been refusing to sell their land for a while, and that the same entity who took over their property after their execution still holds the property to this day, and that's the U.S. government. Today, the Charleston County Sheriff's Office and the North Charleston Police Department substation stand on the bones of Six Mile House. Here's another interesting theory that researchers have about the Fishers, and while it doesn't prove anything about anything, it's pretty fascinating. The wealthy women of Charleston were very reluctant to see a white, married woman hung, right? But the authorities did it anyway. Now, Bruce Orr, the researcher I keep mentioning, has speculated, what if Lavinia wasn't actually white? Years before his arrest, John Fisher was a troubled teen sent to North Carolina to live with his uncle Thomas, who owned a large plantation. In 1810, Thomas Fisher purchased two young female slaves named Sally and Lavinia. Bruce Orr speculates that perhaps Lavinia was biracial and able to pass as white. Perhaps John fell in love with her while living with his uncle, and perhaps the two of them ran away together. It would explain why there's no marriage record for them. Now, I've been clicking around on a bunch of baby name websites, and while the name Lavinia wasn't totally unusual in the early 1800s, it was still pretty rare. According to census records, it was the 36th most popular name for girls born between 1800 and 1810, but it was only used 23 times in that entire decade, right below Mahala and above Eunice. So is a Lavinia Fisher so rare that there could have only been one in North and South Carolina during those years? Who can say? But it's certainly a compelling theory and it adds a layer of poignancy to the couple's doomed love story. What people do agree on is that Lavinia has a lot of reasons to come back as a ghost. Randy himself has felt Lavinia's presence in the jail. She's an action girl, he says. She likes to do things. Her reputation at the jail is as a spirit that will come up behind people and scratch them, and I use that to terrify people. As we walk through the jail, I go, please be aware that if Lavinia is having a particularly bad night, she might very well come up behind you and scratch you. Randy has actually heard people scream at the sensation of being scratched, and even seen the marks on their bodies. Lee was afraid to do a ghost tour in the jail for a really long time because she has a macabre connection to Lavinia. Her great 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 grandfather, Caleb Walker, was one of the jurors at John and Lavinia's trial. I always figured that if she had a little bone to pick, she'd have it with me, Lee says. I was a little freaked out. If I go into this jail and she's holding a grudge, I'm going to be first on her list. Once, Lee says, she was in a room in the jail with her daughter. And while the tour guide was talking about Lavinia, her daughter felt the distinct sensation of someone tucking her hair behind her ears. Another night, Lee brought in a voice recorder. Later, when she listened back to the tape, she heard the tour guide talking, she heard herself whispering to a fellow ghost hunter, and then she heard, as clear as day, a blood-curdling female scream. No one in the room had heard it at the time, but it's captured on the tape. Finally, perhaps the most telling detail about Lavinia Fisher is locked in a box owned by a Charleston man in his 90s. It's a letter, written by someone who was there. Now, I haven't seen the letter, but Lee has. She tells me that those famous last words of Lavinia's weren't the whole story. The account of those words appeared in the local paper, But apparently, a young lawyer saw the paper and then wrote a letter to a friend saying that he was there and he'd heard the words and the paper got it just slightly wrong. Instead of saying, if you have a message you want to send to hell, give it to me, I'll carry it. The letter claims that Lavinia said this. If you find me so evil and there's a message you want to send to hell, give it to me, I'll carry it. That changes those last words, right? If it's true, Lavinia's defiant final stance changes from an arrogant woman ready to meet the devil to a woman convinced of her innocence, appalled that she had to die. Thanks so much for listening to Criminal Broads. Follow us on Instagram or at criminalbroads.com. A subscription on iTunes or, if I may be so bold, a review would be very appreciated. If you'd like to see the sources I use for this episode, they will all be listed at criminalbroads.com. All of the music you've been hearing is by Spheria Trio, and you can listen to them at spheriatrio.bandcamp.com. That's S-F-Y-R-I-A spheriatrio.bandcamp.com And finally, thanks so much to Lee and Randy for all the amazing insider information about Charleston's favorite ghost. By the way, if you're disappointed at the lack of bodies in the cellar of Six Mile House, don't worry. 50 years later, a woman would run a murderous inn and there would be many bodies in the cellar. Her name was Kate Bender and you'll meet her in episode two.